0: Good morning. How is everybody today on this beautiful Tuesday? Feels like spring is finally coming. Yes, yay. Things are going to green up. It's awesome. So, we're back here for more in 1 Samuel today. Jonathan and David. David runs away to the priests and a lot of good good stuff. So, um, as I try to do most weeks, Is there anything y'all would like to ask me or talk about before we get going back in 1 Samuel? This is a place you can bring, I mean, like, not about basketball or something, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah, Gary. Well, yes, see, Charles Harbison, enlighten me to the fact that Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the story of David to Goliath is quite delicious and interesting. <laughs> I would urge anyone to read it, but the part where, so- where Solomon says he's going to kill him like a dog, uh, not Solomon, Goliath says he's going to kill him like a dog. In Peterson's paraphrase, Goliath says to him, I'm going to turn you into roadkill and I'm going to feed you to the birds. Pretty graphic, that's okay, you know, that's good. How was that, Charles? Okay, your, your compatriot here, I see, was primed to, to do that, right? Yes, yes. Anybody have anything else relevant? <laughs> what can I say? Okay. Okay, well, then let's pray, shall we? Okay. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here on this Tuesday at lunchtime with our friends and in this fellowship that you have formed. And we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to um, the book of Samuel today. God has given us the book of Samuel. It's certainly very enjoyable very entertaining. It's just wonderful stories easily told, but we know that you give us all of this so that we can come to know you better, so that we can see your work in this world, um, and so that we can indeed anticipate um, your solution to the problem that we cannot fix. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are back in the story of Saul and David. And Saul is experiencing more and more deep, dark moments as his separation from God sends him deeper deeper into a spiritual depression. And as I said the last couple of weeks, I think it's important that we not just see it on a psychological level like we might today, but that we see the spiritual dimension of what is happening to Saul in his separation from God, in his rebellion against God. Um, He knows what he did. He knows that something is wrong. And he even seems to sense that David is the focus of it. Because even though David plays music for Saul and tries to calm him down, Saul has tried to kill David a couple of times. Okay? In his darkness, in his this spiritual depression, and um, uh, David, Saul's son Jonathan is going to become, has become David's protector in a way. Um, we know that Saul's son Jonathan, the heir to the throne, when he met David, um, it, he just knew that David was a soulmate. And I ask you to look at how much that friendship was reciprocated. Because we'll see that it's really kind of a one-sided deal. It's much more Jonathan, it seems, than it is David. But um, Saul has tried to kill David by sending men to his home. Um, His own wife, Michael, who was one of Saul's daughters, saved David at that moment. And so Saul is really already on the hunt for, for David. And in chapter 20, Jonathan is going to come forward and try to patch things up. Okay? So, any questions or thoughts about all of that? Well, let's just plunge in and see where we see where we go today. So we are in the 20th chapter of 1 Samuel. Okay? Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, and of course, here is the question, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? And of course, the answer is David hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't wronged Saul. He went out and killed Goliath, the giant Philistine. He's been playing music in Saul's court. So you can understand David's David's befuddlement about um, what he has done against Saul to make Saul so murderous towards him. So Jonathan replies, Never. You are not going to die. Right? He's ready to step up as David's protector. He says, look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But of course, Jonathan doesn't really understand. Maybe I'm just going to surmise that Jonathan doesn't understand what's happening to his father. His father is sinking into this deep, deep spiritual depression. Sure, he comes out at times, but at other times it overwhelms him. So Jonathan is probably speaking about the father he always knew, not the father he has right now, if you catch my drift. Okay? But David took an oath. In other words, when it says that, this is a serious thing that David is about to say. Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. So David says, look, your father's after me, He's hiding it from you because it's going to break your heart. And that's why you don't know what's going on, Jonathan, in so many words. And then David goes on, yet as surely as Yahweh lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Like we talked about, a king like Saul in in this world is a king of absolute power. There isn't any real restraint on the kings of the ancient world unless they lived in the culture which imposed so, but by and large they didn't. Kings were, kings were absolute in a way that monarchs slowly became less so over time, and, but at this time, pretty much, what the king said went. So, I imagine day, Jonathan ponders that for a minute, right? I think I would. And he said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. And again, just like his sister Michael, they are choosing against their father and for David. Right? So one way that we could see this, though it's not explicit in the telling of this story, Is that Jonathan and Michael in terms of choosing David against their father is choosing, they're choosing God's will, right? Even if they don't really know it because God has already anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And um, maybe they sense some of that, maybe they don't. I can't read their minds, none of us can, But it's clear they're ready to help David. And Jonathan says, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David comes up with a plan. He says, Look, tomorrow in the new moon feast. The new moon feast, you might say? The new moon feast? (laughs) How many of you have ever been to a new moon feast? Really? They're a lot of fun. So, (laughs) No, I'm, I'm obviously... I'm obviously kidding. Okay, I don't want anybody going home and telling... God was urging us to go to a new moon feast. Let me put up a map here. These lands that you see depicted here, they are not like national boundaries today with walls or guard stations and customs and all that kind of stuff. The Israelite cities are scattered in and in amongst a bunch of pagans. There are pagan cities. At this point in history, Jerusalem, sometimes called Jebus, is not Israelite. It belongs to a people called the Jebusites, okay? It's not, it, it's not, it's not, Isra- it, it, just, it doesn't belong to the Israelites. So, you really have to put aside kind of the way we think of nation-states and so forth in our modern world. And so, they're all living in and among pagans. What you and I might think of as borders, they're not really borders. They're just like who's where and whose villages what, and they're kind of moving back and forth. It's, it's, um, It's a lot different than the world we live in today. And so, consequently, the Israelites are always tempted to adopt pagan practices. To adopt pagan festivals and so forth like that because, you know, they're, they're kind of fun. It's, it's kind of like, what would an analogy be for Christians in our world? Halloween. Ah, oh, very good. Halloween, yes. Halloween is kind of like that. Halloween is not a Christian festival. You know, it's it's the second biggest holiday in the year for retailers, I'm told. Is that right, Patty? You're my Halloween expert. Okay, but (laughs) there's nothing Christian about it, but but we do it. So there we go. If nothing else, Halloween is an excuse for a party. People like excuses for parties. So here we go. There's a new moon feast coming up. So David says, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I'm supposed to dine with the king. Because, remember, he's part of the royal court. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. Okay, so help me work this out. Tomorrow's the feast. David is going to, well, he's supposed to dine with the king. Instead, he's going to disappear. And he's going to be in a certain field the evening of the day after the new moon feast. Basically, kind of 48 hours later. True? Do I have that about right? I think so. Something like that. Verse 6. He says, If your father, Saul, misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. So now Jonathan is given the excuse for why David is missing the new moon feast when the king expected him to be there. That his son, the successor to the throne, gave David permission to go back to Bethlehem. To th- Now is he actually going to go to Bethlehem? No. He's actually going to hide out and then be in this field the evening of the day after the new moon feast. So verse 7, this is still David instructing Jonathan. So if he says, if the king says very well, then your servant is safe. The king doesn't care. Fine, whatever. He's going to go to Bethlehem, his clan, whatever. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, Jonathan, Show kindness to your servant. That's David, the servant. They talk like that a lot. I tried that at home at one time. It was... <laughs> she kind of liked Patty kind of liked it, but no. <laughs> As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before Yahweh. Remember, when Jonathan met David, they entered into a covenant, uh, a, a mutual kind of promise of friendship, and affection, and trust. And Jonathan took off all the accoutrements of kingship, princeship, and gave them all to David. His robe, and his belt, and his sword, and everything else. And gave them all to David. And that act sort of seals that covenant. So David is now reminding Jonathan that they are in this covenant. I don't think Jonathan needs a reminder. But David... Is making sure, because I'm pretty sure David's freaking out. Back to verse 8, at the beginning. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before Yahweh. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. That's dramatic, isn't it? Why hand me over to your father? And Jonathan says, Never! If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? And David said, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? He is really putting Jonathan on the spot, isn't he? Really. I mean, he is pulling out all the stops. If you don't think, you, you just go ahead and kill me. You just go ahead and kill me. Wow. Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. And so, out there, away from everybody else. And why would they go away somewhere, in the field somewhere? to speak further. <laughs> ears. Ears. They don't want any, any ears picking up what's, what, the, what Jonathan is going to say to David. So he leads David out, out of earshot. He says, I swear by Yahweh, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. Right? He's going to sound out his father tomorrow at the festival. It will certainly all be done by the day after tomorrow when David is waiting in the field in the evening. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may Yahweh deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely. If I do not let you know, and send you away in peace. So Jonathan binds himself deeper with David. What a bond they have. You know, in the course of Scripture, from beginning to end, there are stories of friendships. You know, if we were doing a sermon series on friendships, we would have, oh, you'd probably have Ruth and Naomi. You'd probably have Paul and Timothy. You'd probably have Paul and Barnabas. You'd have some, uh, but nothing is like this. This is is the longest told tale of deep and abiding friendship in Scripture. If you want a a story of what deep and abiding friendship means, you look at the commitment that Jonathan makes to David. Not so much yet, the commitment that David makes to Jonathan. You see this? Are you seeing that this, so far, this is kind of looking like a one way street? Jonathan absolutely loves him. He loves him. He loves them, absolutely loves them. He loves them. You know, I think I, I told you all about my brother, my brother Steve, having a friend like that, a, a soulmate, a guy that my brother Steve was so close to, and and they were, and they were very close. And that person was Patty's first husband, the one who died of cancer at 37, and that's how Patty and I came to be. But Steve and Gary had a very deep and abiding friendship. So it's a wonderful thing if you have one or two of those over the course of your life. So Jonathan is speaking let's let's um go back to verse 12. Jonathan says to David, I swear by Yahweh, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow, if he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you my word and let you know? But if my father intends harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know, and send you away in peace. May Yahweh be with you as he has been with my father. So, what does that? Does the writer of this intend us? What do you think? Does the writer of this intend us to think that Jonathan, no, he he doesn't really understand what's happening here. He doesn't really understand where Saul is now with God and where David is now with God? I kind of think so. I kind of think so. May Yahweh be with you as he has been with my father. Now, he didn't say, be with you as he is with my father, but he does say it in kind of a past tense sort of way, has been with you. But it's still, you know, we read it, we're like this omniscient reader, this omniscient viewer of these events, right? Because lots of things are told to us that the people in the story don't, don't know, right? So what actually is happening? with Jonathan. How does he see David and how does he see his father? Because Saul is still his father, but he loves David and he has pledged his undying friendship to David. So verse 14, Jonathan goes on, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when Yahweh has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. earth. So let's read that again because this factors into later stories. Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. From Jonathan's family who will include a little boy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth that you will meet much later in all these, in all these doings. But this, this, this is a place to note. Do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when Yahweh has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. earth. Always look kindly on my family, David. That's what I'm asking of you, David. Regardless of what comes, that's what I'm asking of you. Even when you're on the top of the heap, and you're kind of thinking you ought to do what ancient kings did for themselves perhaps, always be kind to my family. What? No. Well, the part of Jonathan's family that comes into view is a a son of Jonathan. Okay? But it is, I guess it could, and we'll have to see what happens to Saul. Does Saul die at David's hand? I know the answer, but I'm not saying. (laughs) Okay? All right, so wow. Those are some long speeches they gave each other, huh? Any thoughts or questions before we go on? Spur anything? Yeah. So Jane's asking me, well, okay, part A, part B. So Jane's asking me if, if Jonathan is catching on that his father isn't popular. With God, maybe. But maybe not so much because of what he says, right in that verse right there. But certainly with the people. Everybody can see that, Saul, that David is the popular one because he killed the tens of thousands. Saul only killed the thousands, right, and the crowds are cheering, yay, yay, (laughs) right? (laughs) All right. Anything else? Yeah. You would think he would know that his father isn't doing well. Yes, I agree with that. But Saul is still his father, and so, maybe the follow-up question is, is Jonathan going to be surprised by what happens in the story to come when Saul begins this utterly determined um, chase of David? Probably not. And what does Jonathan chalk it up to? I don't know. Jonathan disappears from the story for a good long while. After this, we don't, you know, he kind of disappears from, from the goings on and we are not focused on him as the story moves forward. But surely he does see that something is wrong with Saul, right? Because if when, when Saul picks up the spear and lunges him, right, chucks him at, at David, well, the whole royal court would be a buzz about that, wouldn't they? And they'd be walking. They'd be wearing track shoes into work. Okay. So, verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May Yahweh call David's enemies to account. Okay. So Jonathan, may Yahweh call David's enemies to account. And who will that include? Saul, Saul, Jonathan's own father. Does he realize fully that Saul is part of that list? I don't think so. Not really at this point. I think'll I'll take Jonathan his word. He doesn't see Saul's darkening as being something that is truly going to put Saul would result in Saul being an enemy of of David. But we'll see. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because. So let me get rid of the pronouns. And Jonathan had David reaffirm David's oath, Jonathan's oath, out of love for him because Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. It's still. It's still largely. I wrote about this a long time ago in a background study. It's still largely one way, from, you know, the way this is written. So, which happens? Doesn't that happen in friendships? I mean, you know, how many are like perfectly balanced and stuff? It, it creates great novels and great movies and drama and stuff. These, those kind of relationships that are not in balance and all the tension that comes from it. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone easel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. That will fool everybody. (laughs) Then I will send... (laughs) then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. And if I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come, because as surely as the Lord lives you are safe, there is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go. Okay, so they work out this strategy, this little signaling system where uh, Jonathan's going to take out a a boy from the royal household and shoot the arrows, and what he tells the boy is going to be the signal to David about whether he should come back or he should go. Come back to the king or run. Run. Alright. Verse 23. About the matter you and I discussed, remember Yahweh is witness between you and me Forever. So who is all right, so this is kind of an important point. Who is the witness in to this covenant? God is the witness to this covenant. Let me make a theological point. When you harm somebody else on ways large or small, You've harmed them, yes. But you have committed a sin against whom? God. You've committed a sin against God. Because it's God who has taught us and instructed us that we are to love God and love neighbor. So we harm each other, but they are all sins against God. It's like we were watching um, a British crime drama. Not unusual for for us. And in it, the priest had taken confession, and the police wanted to hear what the confessor had told the priest. Um, and and um, the person who made the confession is dead. And the police, the inspector says to the priest, she's dead, you can't really break faith with her now. And he says, it's not about breaking faith with her. I would be breaking faith with God. You see, that requires a lot of reorientation of us Westerners in this modern world, right? We tend to put God over here in a box, or we just have God do this, you know, like the whole world's in his hands thing. But to actually understand that God is with us, and that when we wrong other people or fail to love other people, those are sins against God this covenant, this promise that Jonathan has made. He has made it in the eyes of God. He's invoked God's name in making this promise. And so if he were to break this promise, sure, it would harm David, but it would be a sin against God. Um, and I think that we, I know I would be, I think we all would be benefited the more that we can reorient ourselves a little bit and understand that when we do, that we do, wrong things. Let's pick something that seems little. Gossiping. That always seems little, doesn't it, until you're the brunt of it. Those are offenses against God, because that is not how God taught us to live. It's not how God created us to live. Okay? So anyway, just a little reorientation there. Any thoughts, questions, follow-up to all of that? Okay, the Lord is my witness, basically, Jonathan says. So, verse 24, so David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall, opposite, John, opposite Jonathan, and Abner, ah, Abner, who's Abner? The general, the general. don't forget Abner, Circle, just take Abner. Was it there? It was a comic strip once, Little Little Abner, right? (laughs) That is reaching way back in time, isn't it? Oh man! However, those of you who remember the comic strip Little Abner are now going to remember the general named Abner in this story, right? Little little memory tricks, because Abner becomes a very important character. Very plays a big role. In the course of David's life. And Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, ah, something must have happened to David to make him ceremonial unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. So they all meet like for lunch the next day or something, and he's not there. And Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse Jesse, come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. And he said, let me go, because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town, and my brother's. My brothers ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. So Pops, that's why he's not at the king's table. So Jonathan is a good deliverer of the message. They came up with this plan and Jonathan is following through. He gives Saul the message that David told him to give Saul. Well, what happens? Look at verse 30. (coughs) Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. Which means what? David is doomed. Saul is after David. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. He said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Gosh, I wonder what that really is in the Hebrew. (laughs) Hey, Charles, what does Eugene Peterson have there? Check on that for me, would you please? Yeah, yeah. I'm betting it's something worse. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. (laughs) This is, his, this is his eldest son, the heir to the throne, right? <laughs> don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse? That's David, right? Because Jesse's father is, <laughs> David's father is Jesse. Don't, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. You think you're going to succeed me? As long as this David's character is kicking around, that ain't happening. Your kingdom will never be established. You will never sit on the throne as long as this David is kicking around. Now send somebody to bring him to me, for he must die. Well, those last four words are pretty clear. <laughs> Just in case, Jonathan is a little bit like, ah, how angry was he? Well, no, he must die. Okay, so you wanna know what Peterson says? Oh, Patty looked up what Peterson says. For the perverse... Son of a slut. Son of a <laughs> slut, okay. We're getting somewhere now. <laughs> yeah, see, see here's, see, here's the thing. Like I said, like I've said in my classes for such a long time, you know, the translators have the Hebrew. And they have to bring the Hebrew into English in such a way that they don't scare off sensitive souls. And so things are kind of softened and made a little bit more polite and so forth. But there's really quite a few places in the Old Testament where the Hebrew is very crude and even in the New Testament as well. Things that you and I would call profanity or, or Uncouth language, or forever, because it's real. It's real, you know. I'm at, you know. Pat and I watch a variety of, of usually murder mysteries, <laughs> <laughs> and and people in those shows sometimes say bad words. Lots of bad words. Sometimes lots of bad. They they can say so many bad words, I turn it off because I get I get worn out, but. My, my criteria generally is, do I think that those bad words are genuine, or are they being done just to be controversial? Oh, look what I can say, you know. So if I think the characters would actually speak like this, and I did, did spend time in the military, so <laughs> then, all right, all right, I can deal with it. Um, if we were reading this the Hebrew and knew the Hebrew well, right, because this is... This is an old Hebrew, right? This Hebrew is very old. So just saying like today you could run over and take Babel Hebrew and read all of this as it should be read in the Hebrew Bible, that's really not how it is. So here, yeah, you son of a, I mean, his father, Saul, absolutely, absolutely dishonors his wife because of his anger at this. His anger at Jonathan, his anger at David. It's its really another dimension of this spiritual darkness in which he finds himself deeper deeper, don't you think? I mean, because this is just... Scott, I'm, I'm even wondering, since he says that word... You son of a slut? Yes, or um, a perverse woman... Is he doubting that Jonathan is his son? I don't think so. I just think he is angry and it's sort of like, sort of like, um, <laughs> I'm thinking about a few other movies. He looks at Jonathan and he says, No way you sprang from my loins. Okay? And it's, I think it's just the anger in him. The anger in him. But maybe, I don't know, some movie. Smoky and, <laughs> Smoky and the Bandit. Yeah, with Jackie Gleason and that doofus son of his. Yeah. Could be. That is from that movie, isn't it? Mike. I was going to say it's from that movie. And he also said, when I get home, I'm going to hit your mother right in the mouth. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Things which are not typically said today on screen. All right, so, yes, yes, my friends. We, we are off track here. Who cares? Yes, Mona. Uh-huh What they say about son of a perverse and rebellious woman the Hebrew idiom intends to characterize Jonathan not his mother. Okay. so it would might be like calling somebody a, a bastard in the old in, in, yeah. old, in older English, right? Yeah. So right? Really Something like a- that. Yeah. Okay, well I hope that's true. Disgusting. Yes his father He did He is lying to his father he got caught he said, hey, well yes I mean he is and Saul I think probably does suspect that he has chosen against Saul who else has chosen against Saul and Saul certainly knows about that Michael. Michael who went remember the whole thing putting the putting the um, pagan idols see there's the pagan idols again the pagan world that they live in, in month. She puts a pagan idol in the bed and covers it up with the blankie and says, ooh, 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 <laughs> blankie, and says, ooh, 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 that's, I'm losing it today. <laughs> says, I, yeah, that, that's David. So now imagine you're just to put yourself in Saul's place. Your daughter, Michael, has chosen David against you. Jonathan is choosing David against you. Gosh, your whole world is crumbling apart. And who would you focus your anger on in that situation? past the heat of the moment? Yeah. on da- <laughs> Maybe not. David. David is the focus of all of this anger. You know, yes, he insults Jonathan. He does, I don't think he really is meaning to insult his wife, but he does insult Jonathan. It's folk, But Jonathan is not the... F- it's David that is the source of all this. He, right... Right, so it's, yeah. A lot of the the longer stories, like like this, like the story of Joseph and his brothers, um, the writers take the time to bring out the family tensions and the family dynamics and so forth, and you can see it. And there's gonna be a lot of that laying ahead when in David's own family, with his own children. So it's, again, it's just, it's, it's just so real, and it's so genuine, and it's so authentic, and that's why we respond to the stories. That's why they, they have given rise to great novels. Okay, yes. Rivals. The king was always worried the son was going to kill him, or the king, in many cases, killed the son. God's bringing out a very good point. In the ancient world, kings were kings until they died. So if you were going, there were no elections where you could defeat them at the polls. So if if anyone wanted to get rid of the king, they couldn't very well rate them wait them out. They had to get rid of them. And that is sometimes done by sons or daughters or wives. This is the story of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had two of his sons executed out of, because he believed that they were out to kill him. So that's, a, you know, <sighs> Saul's a mess, isn't he? He is a mess. I have one other question. Yeah. This is chronicled by Samuel while Samuel's alive, and he dies halfway through this whole series. I would not assume that this was written by Samuel. I think this is written later. No, that's why. It's that. It's called Samuel because he's the principal character at the beginning of it. Where? Well. There are traditions. There are traditions, such just like with Moses. Okay, the Jewish tradition is that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Part of the problem is that Moses dies in Deuteronomy, which makes it difficult to finish. If you're dead, and Samuel dies, so I think the way to understand this is that Samuel might have written some of this down. Most of it would be done orally. And it would be others, maybe led by some stuff from Samuel, who would write this down. How would when David? Maybe this is a stupid question, but when David and Jonathan are talking privately, yes. How is anybody able to write that down? Because nobody heard it. You're right. Nobody heard it. How would how does it happen when Jesus talks with the disciples? So I will give you. Um, I don't particularly need a rational answer to that because it's God moving things along here, right? To go back to my Sunday class, divinely inspired, humanly composed. But many, many years pass in the course of these, of, of David's life. Who did he tell things to? Who did he tell about his, gosh, let me tell you what happened with Jonathan. Is that not sensible that we think that happened? It is to me. It's like Jesus and the disciples. I mean, there are moments in the Gospels where the only way the Gospel writer could have known it is if Jesus told somebody. And then it becomes written, and then the Gospel writer takes it and includes it. And that all makes sense to me. I think that is how it would be. We today share stories of my life. I've shared stories with Patty that she would never, never, ever know if I didn't tell her. And a good number of them are true. (laughs) Okay? So, and I I have a... (laughs) One of my favorite books on my shelf, um, that I read a long time ago, is titled Remembering Jesus, and trying to get into the process of how the disciples remembered Jesus. And of course, for me, As a Christian, that is a process that God is part of, that the Holy Spirit is part of. Guiding them, helping shape them, and um, not dictating the words to them, but helping them look at, what would I almost say, look in the right places for the right words. Because nobody's got steno pads. Not even in the Gospels. Nobody's running around with steno pads. It all has to be... It all has to be remembered. The beauty for those people is they had big oral skills, big oral memory skills that we don't have because we write everything down. So we don't have to remember things, I, which is really good because I can't remember yesterday. So we don't have to, have to remember all kinds of things. In this world they did because they didn't write things down like we write things down now. Okay, good questions. Okay, so now look what Jonathan's response is to his father flying off the handle. Ah, he must die! Saul screams out at Jonathan. I think screaming and foaming at the mouth and the rest of it is the right way to see this. So Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. This is a father and son moment. What? Oh, they're fighting. I mean, this is big. I mean, fierce anger? I mean, they are, they're, this is it. These, and these are two titans. This is the king and the prince. The king and his son, the successor of the kingdom. And the king is, said he, that Jonathan's soulmate must die. So Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger, and on that second day of the feast, he didn't even eat. Because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Just like David said. Jonathan's heart is broken. How could this be that my own father has turned on this David whom I cherish? He, right? And why, why, why is it a shameful treatment of David? Because David hasn't done anything to Saul. He hasn't conspired against Saul. He hasn't gone after the throne. He hasn't put together a set of, you know, a rebel army or anything like that. Well, I'm getting worn out here. Verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David, and he had a small boy with him. And he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow behind you? Beyond you? (laughs) Beyond you? Is it the arrow beyond you? Yes, thank you, everybody, for correcting me there. That's all right, this is important. I can't half see it anyway. Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. So the boy picked up the arrow and returned it to its master. So when Jonathan says, hurry, go, don't stop, don't turn around, who's he talking to? David. David, Because what is David supposed to do? Run. Run, run, and run. Run, run. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. Parenthesis. The boy knew nothing about all this. Only Jonathan and David knew. It was a secret between two of them. The boy isn't even aware of what's going on. Meaning what? In the king's eyes, there is no guilt about anything here to be attached to this boy. Well, then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry him back to town. So after the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. I should have typed out this word on the screen, I did not. The word is obeisance. O-B-E-I-S-A-N-C-E. Obeisance. It is an ancient Near Eastern custom, which you see in movies and other things. where the person, um, usually a subject to royalty or something, will, will, will come up and kneel on the ground and put their forehead to the ground. That's obeisance. Um, and so that is what David is doing to Jonathan, the prince. He comes up, he gives Jonathan full honor three times, three times. He bows to the ground and puts his and and um, with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. And here we come finally. And David wept the most. So finally, we see David's heart is in this covenant also in a way that I don't think we've seen till this moment. They wept. And David wept the most. Now, sure, he has the most to weep about. He is going to go on the run, chased by the king and the king's men and the king's armies and all the rest of it, cut off from the life he knew but I don't think that's really what we're supposed to see here. We're supposed to see that David is weeping the most because he is leaving Jonathan and I'm telling you these I'm 99 percent sure I'm right they do not meet again. They do not meet again. I don't notice I left myself a tiny out there but I'm really Pretty sure I'm right. They don't meet again because David's going to run, and there are again things happen. The Philistines haven't gone away. The Philistines are still out there. There's all the stuff of the kingdom that's still there, but now David is having to run. So, verse 42, Jonathan said to David, "Go in peace, for we have sw- we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of Yahweh, and that's a big invocation." don't call upon the name of god unless you mean it in our world names are just labels i could just as easily be named steve my brother steve could be just as easily have been named scott doesn't matter they don't didn't mean anything to my mother they weren't even family names or anything they were just names that she liked but in this world giving a person your name invoking a name carried with it some power and when i First, began teaching this. I was reaching for analogies, and I think I came upon a good one. In this world, giving somebody your name and them having some power over you um, is analogous, perhaps, in our world to you giving somebody your social security number. Right when you're you're giving them some power and some control over you, so it's not they're not just labels. It's a serious thing when somebody reveals their name to somebody else. Whether it's God revealing his name to Moses the burning bush or two people encounter and they trade names. Or in this case, Jonathan has called on the name of the Lord. Okay. So going on, quote, Yahweh is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And what was David's promise? He would take care of Jonathan's family. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Okay? So let's do a little map thing. Okay. So this is the large map with all, it's packed with all the place names and everything. This is the center. um, This, inside the white circle, white oval is largely where things have been happening. Um, There's a ridge line that runs down, a spine that runs down the center of Israel with the Mediterranean to the west and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River to the east. Um, and these are the place names we keep running into. Um, we're going to about to come to a place called Nob. I had the red arrow point to Nob, but right below it is Jebus, which will become Jerusalem, but it belongs to the Jebusites now. Further south is Bethlehem. North of Nob is Gibeah, Ramah, Mizpah, Bethel. All these place names we keep running into because they're all on in the center area on that central ridge line in Israel. Here's a different type of map from Pastor Ralph Wilson who did a good job on these because they're nice and plain to see. Okay, so there is the Dead Sea, there's Bethlehem, Jebus, Nab, Gibeah, Ramah. right right, right on this... I would call it a mountain ridge. It kind of really is because here's how, here's how it works. The Dead Sea is maybe 1,200, 1,300 feet below sea level. Jerusalem, Jebus up there, is 2,500 feet above sea level. So the climb from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem, which is not very far as a crow flies, is quite a climb of about 4,000 feet. And it can be pretty steep because if you go there on tour, the buses, Sometimes you can see them struggling. They got to get up, they got to get up, they got to get up, 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 up. It's why it can be cold and windy and rainy in Jerusalem and sunny and hot down at the Dead Sea. It just is remarkable the change in the topography and everything else as you make the drive from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea. Ralph didn't put it on there. And the, the distances are all small. Let me see. So on this map, this much right here, my fingertips, 20 miles. So like Bethlehem is just a few miles south of Jerusalem. I mean, this is it's all very compact. You can take the entire you can take the entire nation of Israel today. <sighs> Forgetting about the, you know, the um down to Gaza in that area, down there. you can take, and you could fit it into a space between Denton and Waxahachie, Fort Worth, and Grand Prairie. It's small, 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 small. Nothing like, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the Metroplex, you know, it just doesn't take. We were on a, on a ship once on a cruise, this was a 2011 cruise trip, right? And the ship docked in the north at Galilee at, at the Haifa. Let me put up. Okay, par- you see you see Mount Carmel? That little jutting of land out there, right up I'm kinda pointing to? That that's Haifa. So the ship docked at Haifa. We did Galilee. The ship was supposed to move in the night down to Ashdod, Ashkelon, which is down here, but it didn't because there was a little trouble down here, so they just played it safe. They stayed in the north and we just took the bus down in order to see Jerusalem. And even though that Chewed up some of the day. We still got a lot done that day. So yes. I believe it was our 2016 trip. We went to a place that you said David Hill Saul did. And he had the goats up on the rock. And had the little springs, it was an oasis. Right. So which one was that? Getty. Engetty. Engetty. Let me show you N Getty. There's Engetty. This is this is an oasis, right? I think Engeeti is on. I don't know. I don't know where this map came from, but it, it, it's a pretty good one. Yeah, then right there. So here's Masada down here. So typically, if you're on a tour that goes to Masada, to do that you can only you have to be on a full ten day land trip because it's it's a big trip to go to Masada. You go to Masada, but on the way back you can stop at Engetty. And it's an oasis, it's where there's waterfalls. We went there one time and there was a bride getting, um, doing wedding photography, right? With her dress, I think, in the, water. She's in the water. She was in the water with the dress on here in this, with the waterfall pooling. These are the pictures. I didn't bring them because we're not to En yet in the story. We're going to get to the En story. Next week, I think. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, in yeah, well, that, that, Let me tell you, you've been with me a while. That's not going to be next week. <laughs> okay, anything else? Okay, well, let's, let's just see what David is doing now because he's, he's on the run. Where does he go? David went to Nob. I didn't name it. David went to Nob. To Ahimelech the priest. Now we have run into Ahimelech before. He's a priest of Israel. Ahimelech trembled when he met David and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Dot, 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 you're making me really nervous. Right? We've all, we've all, the word is going through the countryside, dude, that the king is after you. What is up? Here you come walking into this place. All by yourself. What is going on? David answered Ahimelech the priest, Well, the king sent me on a mission. Is that true? No, No, it's a lie. And said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, David now has men. I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I do not have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. Okay, so, all right. So let's talk about this bread in the tabernacle there is a table on which the bread of presence would be put it was bread baked by the priests for god consecrated for god to be only eaten by the priests not by just regular regular folk and that's what the priest is talking about and um the men having kept themselves from women speaks to the men's ritual cleanliness or uncleanness because in, in the books of Leviticus and the rest there are a lot of stipulations about what you have to do to be ritually clean um, and sex would make you ritually unclean um, a woman having her period would make her ritually unclean and. So, the priest answered, David, you know, I don't have any ordinary bread. I only have this consecrated bread, this bread of the presence. It's God's bread. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual, whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So, in David's view, these are holy warriors on a mission from God, not from the king, but on a mission from God, consecrated to God these warriors are. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread. Now why does he give him the consecrated bread? He's hungry. Let's get real. No, he doesn't give it to David because David's hungry. He gives them to David because he's scared. That's what I think. I think he's scared of David and these these men. This is um, James Tussauds did a painting of David's band of Very yeah, we go, menacing warriors. David ends up with a group of 30 okay, that are his closest warriors and this is the painting. Tussaud was an um, uh, uh, artist of the late 19th century who had a powerful, powerful experience of, of, of God and became a devout Christian and took his many skills um, and as an artist, and applied them to doing paintings from the Bible, and he did about seven hundred of them. Seven hundred. He has a very distinctive style. You can usually spot at a so painting. He often walked in watercolor, um, sometimes in oil. Um, but this is his painting of David's merry band of warriors. Kay? Okay. Okay. Twelve of them, Scott. <laughs> David is not forming a new Israel around himself. He ends up with a group of about 30. But the point is, these are rugged warriors. And of course Ahimelech, the priest, is scared and nervous. I think that's an underlying piece of this whole thing. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread. Said so There was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before Yahweh and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken. So, the priest compromises and gives David what bread? The bread from the day-old shelf. Right? The bread from the day-old shelf. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before Yahweh, there in the priest's town. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. Now, being an Edomite, it means he's not an Israelite. He's an Edomite. Edomite Edomites, I can go back, I, got to, I get to use my maps a lot today. Here's Edom. Ruth is from Moab. Doeg is from Edom. But he's employed in the king's household, and he works as the king's chief shepherd. And you need to remember that name, Doeg. We haven't seen the last of Doeg. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. We didn't even have time to grab weapons. The priest replied, Well, hmm, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the Valley of Elah is here. It is wrapped up in a cloth behind the ephod. Back in the whole priestly stuff. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. And David said, there is none like it, give it to me. So David has been to Nob. He got this holy bread, this consecrated bread for his men. Because they're hungry and because the priests are nervous about this whole thing. Probably fearful. They have reason to be, as you will see later. One time, Jesus is, and his disciples are walking through the fields, and the disciples, the Sabbath, and the disciples are a little hungry, so they, pick, they pluck the heads of wheat off the stalks, and they're kind of munching on them, just Hard to picture as the lunch, but that's what they're doing. They're munching on these these heads of the wheat stalks. And the Pharisees see them and they challenge them because for the Pharisees that is doing work on the Sabbath to go actually and break off to pluck the head of wheat. And they challenge Jesus on it. And Jesus' response is to tell them what story? this very story from 1st Samuel 21 well why are you coming at me didn't David go to the priests in the tabernacle did wasn't he given and didn't they eat the pre the bread of presence yes 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 and so Jesus says hmm that's when he says the Sabbath was not um, made for man Okay, somebody help me. The, sab- uh, the, the Sabbath was made for God, not for man. Ah! Mark chapter 2. <laughs> okay. So he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The point being that, that the Sabbath the Pharisees had lost a sense of what the Sabbath was all about. Right? So it's just fascinating that the story Jesus goes to in the midst of that is this story right here. So when we come back together next week, David is going to be fleeing from Saul and guess where he goes for protection? The Philistines. He's going to go to the Philistines for protection. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He's going to go to the Philistines. They're right there. He's going to go to one of these Philistine cities. Remember, there are five Philistine cities. I'll bring a, bring a map with those on it next week. So anyway, that's it. Andy? Do you, do you assume that David travels alone with his gang? I think he's got a gang now. I think he takes the bread back to his gang. I don't know how many are in the gang. I think he's got some men. Well, well, there's kind of a big break, isn't there, between Jonathan and David departing, and the next thing we have, David's going to Nob, and he's talking about his men out in the field, and all that kind of stuff. And no, I... I they travel themselves what? They, probably don't travel themselves cause they're so dangerous. they whom? A, a person. They travel. Well, I mean, they're not traveling very far. So, I mean, people. you're right, Andy. In that world, people generally didn't travel very far. It wasn't safe. That would be true in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, in the Rome of Jesus' day, if you're going to leave your house and run down the street you need to, at night, you needed somebody with you, a bodyguard or something. So, when we, ne- when we come back next week, David will be um, making his way to the Philistines for safe harbor. Okay? Anything else before I close us in prayer? Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, help us to appreciate the power of your name. That your name is sacred. And to be used in a sacred way never taken for granted, never abused. Help us to appreciate the importance of friendship and covenants between friends, promises made and promises kept. For in that we can find our way to what love really is. Not what we simply say, what we do. And all this we pray in the great and glorious name of your Son Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.